sued. This is for an undisclosed amount of money and for unspecified civil rights violations. He sued 57 pages worth of folks, so 784 defendants. Among them, George Bush, the Pope, Bill Gates, Queen Elizabeth, the Gambino crime family, Three Mile Island, Burt Reynolds, Google, the Salvation Army, Army, the Wu-Tang Clan, the Magna Carta, Tsunami Victims, the Kremlin, Nostradamus, the Lincoln Memorial, Meals on Wheels, Nordic Gods, Pizza Hut, the European Union, the Methodist Church, Viagra, Ninja Samurai Fighters, and the planet Pluto were all named as defendants in his lawsuit. You can Google Jonathan Lee Riches. It'll entertain you for the rest of the afternoon. No. We're looking at walking through 1 Corinthians a little bit at a time. Uh, chapter 6, Paul deals with the lawsuit in the church between uh, Christians. It's a Christian in the church suing another Christian, and Paul's saying, you can't do that. The bigger issue, I think, behind this idea of the lawsuit is he's saying to them, y'all need to be who you are. As Christians, you need to act like it. Last week, we looked at this idea of sexual immorality. That was the specific thing that Paul was going after. The broader issue, he was saying, church, y'all need to be the church. And that's what he's doing here, except he's saying specifically, individual Christians, act like it. So starting in verse 1. If any of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? The implied answer is no, of course you would not. That word dispute is a technical term for what we would call a civil lawsuit. Do you not know that saints will judge the world? Again, the implied answer is yes, of course we will. Um, as people who are connected to Jesus, Jesus reigns, he's going to judge the earth. Somehow we participate in that. Not quite sure exactly what that looks like. Not a contradiction to what we looked at last week where Paul says we're not to judge people outside of the church. In that case, he's talking about here, kind of temporarily, uh, that this judgment is ultimate. And if you were to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Again, the answer would be, of course you are. Do you not know that, you will ju- that we will judge angels? You can look in 2 Peter 2 and in Jude. There's this kind of these cryptic passages about certain fallen angels getting put in some type of jail and saved until judgment. How much more the things of this life. Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, appoint as judges even men of little account in the church. Your Bible might have a little footnote after that. I think this is probably a better understanding. Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters... Do you appoint as judges men of little account in the church? He's saying, why are you doing this? If y'all have, are fighting among yourselves, if you have a problem here among the church, why are you going outside of the church to get that solved? Why would you allow somebody who has rejected your value system to make a decision for you? Verse 5, I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers. One of their things we've talked about before was they saw themselves as very spiritual and very wise, and he's saying, well, if that's the case, how come y'all can't figure this out? But instead, one brother goes to law against another, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have, means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brother. So he says to the plaintiff, you've already been defeated because you chose to sue. Instead of offering forgiveness, instead of turning the other cheek, instead of just saying, listen, you wronged me, but I'm, gonna, I'm not going to pursue this matter. 
you chose to sue, you've already been defeated. To the defendant, he says, you've already been defeated because you cheated your brother and you haven't repented of that. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? No, of course they won't. So don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, we looked at that last week, that's an umbrella term for all sexual behavior outside of a man and woman who are married, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders. Those two phrases refer to uh, two partners in a homosexual relationship. Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were cleansed from your former life, you were sanctified, you were set apart by God for his purposes, you were justified, you were declared righteous in his sight, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit of our God. So, real quick on this whole idea of lawsuits. This is not a criminal case, it's civil, so this is not whether or not you should press charges against someone who breaks into your house or steal something from you, anything like that. Romans 13, 1 through 4, Paul says, all of that, all of that criminal stuff, that's the states, and we let them deal with it. So this is not talking about what you should do in a criminal case. This is not an issue of somebody trying to right some societal wrong. This is not Brown versus the Board of Education that says, you know, segregation is illegal. That's not what's going on here. This is one guy in the church suing another guy in the church because he got cheated out of money, some type of business deal went wrong. We live in a land of laws. Sometimes those laws are not just, and often the only way to address that is through the court system. And so if that's you, if you're that guy at some point in your life where you're kind of a crusader and you see this thing that's it's just not right, that doesn't mean you can't sue to have those laws changed. What I would say about that is just Check your motives. Why are you doing whatever it is that you're doing? Are you doing it for your own benefit? Are you truly doing it because this something is unjust and it needs to be fixed? So again, it's not saying we, we never sue. What Paul's talking about are interpersonal lawsuits. You may say, well, what about Christian, non-Christian? How does that play out? Matthew 5, this is Sermon on the Mount. You've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. So you wrong me, I'm going to sue you to get back what's mine. But I tell you, don't resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. That's a tough passage. Try to figure out how to take the edge off of that a little bit. Jesus and Paul both very clear. It's not, we don't sue. That's not what we do with one another. If I've been individually, personally wronged, I'm in a business deal, you cheated me, you wronged me, whatever, I don't sue you. I just say, all right, the money's gone. That's that. That's what Paul says. It's better to be cheated, it's better to be wronged than to bring this stuff to court. Again, that's a hard thing for us to grab onto. It's not fair, absolutely. It is not fair. There's this justice thing in us that says that's just not, that's not how things should be. Again, biblically, we live as Christians under a different set of values. This is one of the implications of that different value system. It says, I would rather lose money than go to court over this matter. I'm going to pursue reconciliation. I'm going to pursue forgiveness. If I can't pursue those, I'm still not going to go after you. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to lose. I'm going to be wronged. I'm going to be cheated versus escalating this conflict 
between us. That's, again, that's a hard thing to grab onto, especially if you're, you're thinking through the scenarios of what that can mean for you personally. But that's, to me, it seems pretty clear in the Bible. That's what Paul is saying. And I think Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says the same thing. So if we blow this out a little bit, um, to look at Luke 14, most of you probably will never be in a situation where you would have to make a decision, am I going to sue somebody or not? But I think there's a broader umbrella that we can look at. This is Luke 14. Large crowds are traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said. So he's got this big crowd. I don't know if he's trying to filter them out or what, but this is what he says. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, sisters, yes, even his own life, he can't be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me can't be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a new, excuse me, wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose one coming with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? The answer is it can't be. It's fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It's thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Without going phrase by phrase through that, you see the overarching picture. You want to follow me, there's a cost involved. What does he say? If you don't hate everyone you're related to, that's in comparison to our love for him. We don't love him more than we love them. We can't be his disciples. We don't take up our cross. We can't be his disciples. We're not willing to give up everything. You can't be his disciple. That's a high bar. That's why he says count the cost, because there is a cost to following him, and the cost is everything. What's tricky for us is we live in a society where it's easy to follow Jesus. If I gave you a note card and said, write down everything it's cost you to follow him, most of us have a blank note card. It hadn't cost us really anything. We, a few weeks ago, you remember, um, I told you about this girl in Tanzania. We have a missionary who works with some folks in Tanzania, and that there's this Muslim girl, and she became a Christian, and the four guys that led her to Christ they were all beaten and thrown in jail, and all four of their churches were burned down. These four different churches were all burned down, and they told this girl that they were going to kill her, and they were going to kill her husband, or excuse me, her dad and her brother as well, I think. And so that, there's cost involved for her. When she made a decision to leave the Muslim faith and become a Christian, she knew what she was getting into. She knew this might cost me. I got an email a couple of weeks ago, and they said the guys are still in jail. Um, they're doing better, and they've actually led several of their jailers to the Lord during their time while they've been there. That's a different, we don't live there, and I don't want to live there. But we live in a world, the United States, where we don't, there's not really a lot of cost, and that's why we're kind of soft and squishy in a lot of ways. They say the church looks a lot like society, and individually as Christians, we look, it's hard to tell us from people who aren't Christians. And again, I think it's just because we're kind of soft and were kind of squishy. In the 1950s, the communists took over in China, and they, they kicked out all of the Western missionaries. At that point, there were about 700,000 Protestant Christians. So in the 50s, there were about 700,000 Protestant Christians. Communists come over, lock everything down, sweep out all the Christians, and we don't hear much of anything 
for about 50 years. And after 50 years, things open up a little bit. Some organizations are able to get in. Most of them are underground. Some journalists are able to get in, and they want to know what's the state of the church. Did it survive this communist regime? 80 to 100 million Christians now in China, from 700,000 to 80 to 100 million under an oppressive regime. And there's a, many of these Christians are part of an underground house church network. It's a loose affiliation, and they have this desire, this house church network, to send 100,000 missionaries to some of the darkest places in the world where uh, Islam, Christ, uh, Buddhism, and Hinduism are, are dominant religions. And they know it's going to be difficult for them to get through. And this is what one of the leaders says about that. He says, the Muslims and the Buddhist nations can torture us, imprison us, and starve us, but they can do no more than we've already experienced in China for many decades. So what they're saying is, we're tough. Because of where we have lived, our guys are tough. Thousands of young men and women will go as missionaries who are not afraid to die for Jesus. They're not afraid to bleed, for they know their bodies are merely tempor temporary tents to be used in the Lord's service, and that one day they'll be in paradise where there's no pain and no tears. They're not only ready to die for the gospel, they're expecting it. That's not us. And I don't say that with any judgment, but that most of us, I would say none of us, expect to die for Jesus. That's not the culture that we live in. Maybe some small insult, slight, something like that, but not death. We Again, we live in a culture where it's easy to follow him, and so we tend to be kind of soft and squishy around the edges. They live in a culture where to follow him means you may be arrested, so they're tough because they've counted the cost going in, and they take it seriously. This is how they train their missionaries, how to reach across cultural uh, and other barriers. We do that with all of our missionaries. It's cross-cultural communication, how to reach specific groups. We do that as well. That's, you know, how do you connect with people from different worldviews and different religions? How to suffer and die for the Lord. That's not on our list, usually. How to witness for the Lord in every situation, including in a police car on the way to execution. And how to escape. How to get out of handcuffs in 30 seconds. How to jump out of a second-story window without getting hurt. They say sometimes you're in prison for, from... The prison is from God to spread the gospel like that Tanzania story. Sometimes it's from the devil to stop the spread of the gospel, so you have to be able to get out. I've had seminary. Uh, I, we didn't learn how to escape, um, how to get out of handcuff. none of that. Brandon mentioned earlier, you know, we're going to have this short-term mission Sunday, next Sunday. We're not going to teach you a lot of this stuff because you're not going someplace where you're going to die. That's, that's just, that's not where we, that's not where we operate. It's where, for these guys, it's, that's normal for them. They're tough. And again, we tend to be soft and squishy. And I don't say that with any judgment. It's the reality of the circumstances that we live in. Many of you grew up playing sports, and some of you had soft coaches, which is great during practice because soft coaches give you a soft practice. You don't have to work that hard. They don't push you very hard. They're not that exacting in terms of uh, detail. It's pretty easy during practice. You're not that tired. You don't have to work that hard when you're done. It's not so fun on a game day because soft coach equals soft practice equals soft teams, and soft teams lose to tough teams. Tough teams are tough because they had a tough practice because they had a tough coach. China is tough. They're in this situation where it's tough to follow Jesus, and so it creates people like that who will say, oh, sure, I'll sign up. Sure, I'm fine to take the gospel as far as I can take it until the people arrest me and kill me. Yes. And they have apparently 
uh, people willing, signing up to do this. We have some missionaries in China, and they're part of the group that trains these guys. You know, so it's just, it's a different world than where we live, where, again, it's so easy to follow Jesus. We can't manufacture these circumstances that are going to make us tough. You know, we can't change the societal conditions where suddenly it becomes, uh, there's a higher cost to us to following Jesus. And I'm not sure that we want to do that. But one thing I know from reading the Bible is he who stands firm to the end will be saved, and we want to be the kind of people who can stand firm until the end. As you read through, particularly in Revelation, there's this time called the Great Tribulation. Tribulation is squeezing, which is going to be the most significant and severe squeezing in the history of the world. It's going to be global versus localized, and the intensity is going to be great. My belief is as Christians, we have to live through that. Some people believe we'll be taken up to heaven before that. We've talked about that before. That's not where I'm coming from. We can talk about that if you want. I think we've got to live through it. I hope you're right if, you're, if you think we're going to get zapped up beforehand. I would love to be on that ship, but in case that's not the way things play out, we need to be ready to live through that time. And if we've had soft practices for 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 years, it's pretty silly to think that when things are at their most intense, we're going to be tough. I, just, I don't know how that works. I think that's how when you read through the Gospels and Jesus says, many will fall away and the love of most will grow cold and these signs would deceive even the elect if it were possible. I've wondered, how does that happen? And it happens because of generations of living soft. We're not ready when we're squeezed. It's silly to think that if you wronged me and you cheated me out of a significant amount of money, that I'm not going to react and sue you or punch you. That somehow in those intense times, Jesus is going to come out of me when I haven't been training myself for that. That somehow I'm going to practice forgiveness and mercy and grace and love when, those are, when I've been running a soft practice for my whole Christian life. That when it's truly difficult, I'm somehow going to rise to the occasion. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 9. We'll look at this in a few weeks. Don't you know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I don't run like a man running aimlessly. I don't fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself might not be disqualified from the prize. So this is what I want you to do this week. I want you to, I want you to do something that will make you tough. We've got a couple of girls who are doing the three-day Susan Komen walk, I think it's a 60-mile thing. That makes you tough, doing something like that. Maybe it's something physical for you. Fast. Some of you, maybe you've never fasted. Don't eat for a day. That's tough. That's the kind of thing that can toughen you up. Don't watch TV this week. For some of you, that's, that's a tough thing to do. Your favorite shows are out now, and to not do that. It would be really tough if you didn't watch TV and you didn't DVR. How about that? You just missed the show. That's hard. Decide. I'm going to tell somebody about Jesus. Just make a decision. I'm going to do that. And then find somebody and tell them about Jesus this week. Decide you're going to get up at 5.30 in the morning or 6 and pray and read. I'm not a morning person. That's the point for some of this. Not a legalism, but it's this 
sometimes just intentionally saying, I'm going to do something hard in order to get tough. It's what, again, most many of you who grew up playing sports, that's part of practice. Your coach made you, if you had a good coach, do things that were hard so you'd be ready for the game. And that's how we want to be. We want to be ready when we're squeezed. We don't want to be caught. We don't want to be guys who don't make it through. We don't want to be guys who, when the pressure's on, we wilt under that. We live contrary to our beliefs and convictions. We want to uphold our values. We want to follow Jesus, good times and the difficult times. And one of the things that we can do in preparation, again, we can't, I don't want to move to China. I don't. I don't want to be in that environment. I like where we are here. But in the midst of this place where it's easy to follow Jesus, there's some things that we need to do intentionally so that we're becoming tough as Christians. I talk to people regularly, and I think one of the weaknesses we have, as, I think particularly as men even, is sometimes we're just sissies. Something bad happens and we roll over and die instead of saying, no, I'm going to fight this. We're just not tough in general. There was a missionary to China, her name was Jackie Pullinger. I'm trying to remember this quote. Jesus wants us to have soft hearts and hard feet. Most of us have hard hearts and soft feet. The picture there, we want to be tough without being hard in terms of, we don't want to be, you get me, we want to be tough. So what else can you do? Serve. Some of you might just need to serve somewhere, particularly people who you don't connect with, you don't like very much. We can help hook you up with some places where you can serve that it would be difficult. It might be hard for you to do that or to give up the time to do that. Some of you get Christmas bonuses. What if you decided this week you're going to give away a fourth or a third or a half of that? You don't have to give it here. Give it somewhere else. But you just, I'm going to do that. And that's a hard thing to do, to give up that money. I'm going to make a decision. These things are more important than me having this money. Make a decision to do something that will toughen you up. And then tell somebody about it before you leave. If you don't tell anybody, then it's just you and you'll talk yourself out of it. You'll figure out why it's a bad idea pretty quick. Tell somebody there's a little bit of accountability. You don't need to have a vision from Jesus to not eat tomorrow. It's not a super spiritual thing. It's a decision that you make that says, you know what? I am soft and squishy in some places. I want to train my body. I want to learn how to say no to my flesh and yes to the spirit. I want to learn how to deny some of these pleasures or whatever they are. I want to learn how to go without those. I don't want those things to run my life. I'm not a slave to that anymore. And I want to say yes to Jesus. I want to say yes to following him. And I want the discipline of being able to do that. So think about that. And we'll close with this. Paul gives this long list of all of these sins and says, this is what some of y'all were. You were habitually these things. This was a lifestyle that you were leading. That's in verses 9 and 10. And in verse 11, he says, that's what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. What he's saying there is be who you are. You used to be all of these bad things. Now you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified, so act like it. Stop acting like you used to be and start acting like you really are. I think that's a disconnect for many of us 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says, where if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. So all of this stuff that you used to be, it's all gone. The new has come. So that's we want to live out of this new. We said last week our behavior should come out of our identity. That's 
one of the differences between Christianity and every other major world religion. We don't teach behavior way into God's good graces, behavior way into God's favor, behavior way into heaven. What we say is you receive this new heart, and out of this new heart, then changed behavior comes. But for many of us, we continue to live out of our old self, even though we're a new self. That's what he's saying to these guys. Guys, y'all are new creations. Why are you living like you're not? Why are you suing each other? Why are you cheating each other? Why are you living in this sexual immorality? That's past for y'all. You're not that guy anymore. You're this new person in Christ. He's washed you of that former lifestyle. He set you apart for his purposes. He said you're justified. You're not guilty of any of that stuff. So why do you continue to operate out of this old self? And he would say the same thing to us today. You don't have to operate out of this old self anymore. That's dead. That part has been crucified with Jesus. It's difficult for us because that's not the reality that we live in. God says you're holy and we say, hmm, not sure. Chosen, I don't feel it. Our feelings and our circumstances run counter to what God has said about us and in the dailiness of life, it's difficult to choose what he says over what we see. You like, think, uh, literature. God's the author. What the author says about the characters, that's reality. The author determines the reality of the characters. He or she is the one writing the story. God's the one writing the story. He's the author, and what he says about us, that is reality. The issue for many of us, again, though, is that we don't see that reality. We actually see something that runs counter to that, and we're prone to live out of this old self and not out of this new self. Easy one, worry. If you're a worrier, you're living out of your old self. Whether you worry about money, whether you worry about your children, whether you worry about your job, whether you worry about the election, if you're worried about anything, that's old self-rooted. And what you can do is you can beat yourself up every time you start to worry, oh, I'm not having faith and I'm not trusting, and you can pop the rubber band on your wrist to make yourself quit worrying. You can do all that. That's just behavior modification. And it ultimately doesn't get at the heart of what's going on. That's just managing your sin. Better, takes longer, but better, would be to step back and say, why am I worried? I would say this if you're someone who worries. Whatever you worry about, ask yourself this. If I truly believed what God said about me, would I be worried about this? If I believed in my heart that what God said about me is true, would I be worried about this? If you truly believe that you're a son or a daughter of God, and he says, I will take care of you, would you still be worried about fill in the blank? And if you with a straight face can say, absolutely, I would still be worried about it, then go ahead and worry away. But if you can't, and you can't, then quit. And the way you quit, again, it's not behavior modification. It's by stepping back and looking at your heart and seeing either what lie have I believed or what truth have I not believed. And that's usually what it is. There's some truth that we haven't believed. God says, you're my son, you're my daughter. You don't have to worry about anything. I've got it. I've got all of it. Trust me. Most of us, we hadn't, that hadn't penetrated yet. And so we scramble and scurry and try to hold the world together on our own. Lying. Maybe some of you lie. You would say, I'm not a liar. I just lie sometimes, which would make you a liar. But we do that. Oftentimes, we lie because we're trying to protect ourselves. We either want to make ourselves look good or we want to make sure we don't look bad. 
that's why we lie. We either exaggerate, which is just a form of lying, sorry, and to make ourselves look better, or we try to deflect responsibility for something in order to not make ourselves look bad. Both of those things, it's self-protection. That's old self-thinking. Don't call it spin or marketing or advertising or upselling or any of that. It's lying and it's old self-thinking. What we want to do is new self. This is where I live over here. And because God loves me and has accepted me, then I don't have to protect my image anymore. I can let you see what I'm good at and what I'm not good at. I don't have to overinflate my strengths and I don't have to hide my weaknesses. I'm not judged by God based on my performance. My value is not tied to my performance. It's tied to my relationship with him. And so out of that, I can be truthful, good, bad, and ugly. That's new self. So again, if you're someone who tends to lie, I would say, rather than just beating yourself up after you've done it, step back, ask, if I truly believed what God, what God said about me, would I still be lying? And the answer is no, you wouldn't. If you truly believed that you were accepted and loved by God, that he was great with you based on his relationship with you, you were not being judged based on your performance with him, that you were secure, you wouldn't have to hide anymore behind falsehood. You'd become a person of truth. You, probably, you might have others. So I want to close with this. Y'all can close your eyes. Two things I want you to think about. And I'll try to tie them together. One, what's something that you can do this week that will make you tough, that will toughen you up? It's not a legalism. I'm not asking you to perform. It's not about who's, who's doing the most sacrificing. It's a recognition that we live in a place where it's easy to be soft and squishy, and we don't want to be soft and squishy. So we want to take responsibility for our own hearts. Just like you've done with everything you've ever practiced. You've taken responsibility. I'm asking you to do the same thing spiritually. So I want you to grab onto something that you can do this week. God, my prayer for each of these things that we're saying yes, we're going to do. Again, that it would not be a legalism for us. It would be a channel of your grace to us. God, my prayer is that in time, in days and weeks and months and years of training our bodies, God, that we would be the kind who would stand firm to the end. And God, my prayer is we say yes to you and no to some other things, things that are fine. They're not sinful things. We're just saying no to things in order to say yes to you, is that we would grow in our love for you and that would feed this desire to say yes to you. And we would get in that cycle of saying yes, causing us to love you more, which makes it easier to say yes, which causes us to love you more, which makes it easier to say yes to you. First step's the hardest, and I pray for your grace for us this week in that. No condemnation for not making it all the way but just asking you to give us grace. Second thing, and this is tied to the first, is there an area of your life where you're living out of your old self? The answer is yes. So what is the area in your life where you're living out of your old self?
then underneath that, either what lie are you believing or what truth are you not believing that's leading to that behavior or to that mindset. Most of us know everything we need to know in our heads. It hasn't quite penetrated our hearts. And we want that to happen this morning. We read that thing about taking up your cross, and some people may think, well, this is just my cross. If it's a sin, it's not your cross. God doesn't want you to carry that. He wants you to leave that. If it's a sinful behavior pattern, a sinful thought pattern, You can be set free from that today. If you've already said yes to following Jesus, you've died to that that old self, that sin nature. You're dead to that. We want you to begin to live accordingly. This idea, I was talking about being tough. I want you to hear you are. You are tough. Our circumstances sometimes don't indicate that. If we can, again, begin to believe what God says about us and live out of that, it'll change everything. So God, my prayer is the areas where we're living out of our old self, that you would bring conviction, you would allow us to see that. For some of us, it's a huge blind spot. And you would give us grace to see where we're living out of our old self. And God, you begin to speak your truth into that area of uh, deception in our hearts, that we would begin to agree with you and what you say is true. And from that restored identity, God, I pray that our behaviors would begin to change and would begin to line up with the truth of who we are in Jesus. Paul says all of this is done by the Holy Spirit. And so, Father, we're asking you to touch each of us by your Spirit this morning. The places where we're not believing truth, your Spirit of truth would guide us into truth the places where maybe we're lazy, soft, squishy, your spirit would empower us to say yes to you and say no to things that would get in the way of you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can stand. Annie Kate's going to close.